Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Interesting dynamics, and of course, all of us folks overwhelmed by so many cross currents, so many events, including, as Jonathan uh, mentioned there, the pandemic, the new news, the new iterative news, if you will, of this terrible uh, virus. He has been hugely visible, persistently prolific, but Mohammed Alarian always writing smartly about economics, finance, and investment from his core foundation of game theory. We're thrilled that Dr. Alarian could join us this morning, of course, writing too often for Bloomberg Opinion. He will take up a modest uh, position at Cambridge University in the autumn uh, months. Mohammed, wonderful to have you with us. Everybody out there right now has to make a T decision of do they want to play in the markets or in fear, do they want to remove themselves from the markets? How do you approach that T decision? Good morning, Tom, and good morning for having me. Look, it, it fundamentally comes down to how you feel about the disconnect between finance and the economy. If you believe, like I do, that ultimately fundamentals will assert themselves, then you are more cautious about this market and you're worried not just about the level of the market, but you're starting to get worried also about relative pricing. If, however, you believe that technicals call them FOMO, the fear of missing out, call them TINA, there is no alternative. <clears throat> and if you believe that central banks will continue to protect every asset, then you can participate in this market on the long side, regardless of fundamentals. So it really comes down to how wedded are you that fundamentals matter. So Mohammed, let's talk about the fundamentals. You and I have discussed this now for several weeks. What matters? The initial improvement sequentially, month on month, week on week, or the overall limits of the recovery, the limits of normalization. There's just a real push and pull there. One of those things will be a dominant driver for quite a while. Which one is it? So it's now both because of the level of the marketplace. So in the beginning, it was about the, the, the sequential improvement. And markets got reinforcement of sequentially improving situation on health and therefore on the economy. And markets got carried away. So now the implicit valuation is that not only will the journey be a pleasant one, but you're also certain about the destination. And what we've been getting over the last couple of days are legitimate questions, both about the journey and the destination. What we haven't been getting is any question mark about central bank support that is consistent and strong, nor really about market fundamentals, market technicals. You see it again today. The buy the dip mentality, the conditioning to buy the dip is very deeply embedded in this market. Scarring, Mohammed. Scarring is something I want to talk about with you. The IMF mentioned that in the last 24 hours, the permanent job losses, the bankruptcies, the sectors that just won't come back 100%. I've got a headline crossing a Bloomberg terminal right now that American Airlines sees second quarter revenue decline of about 90%, capacity down 75% in the second quarter. Have you got your hands around the amount of scarring that we will have coming out of the other side of this pandemic? Yes, more on the supply side than on the demand side. So on the supply side, we're going to see hits to both productivity on, on, on the capital side and on the labor side. We are going to see a process of deglobalization 
that is driven by households, governments, and the corporate sector. And the result of that, absent, and I want to stress, there's nothing predestined, depends on policies, but absent policies to improve productivity will be lower productivity and lower growth. And that's what you hear from the IMF, you heard it from the OECD, you heard it from the World Bank. What's more uncertain is the demand side, John. We don't know what's going to happen to people's marginal propensity to consume. How willing will people be to spend money? How willing will people be to um, continue behavior that the U.S. consumer has been so good at, which has drive the economy? Will we come out with a more frugal society or not? That's still a question mark. Mohammed, I, I want to talk about this decline in productivity and growth that you're talking about paired with the question marks around demand and deglobalization, which a lot of people think will actually be inflationary, because if you bring supply chains home, you won't necessarily capture the efficiencies of cost that some of the globalization did. I'm wondering, does this feel like a stagflationary environment? Is that what you're portraying here? Well, you do have two inflationary pressures. One is simply the rewiring of supply chains and the inefficiencies that come with that. And the other one is we are seeing, Lisa, a significant increase in industrial concentration. The big firms are getting bigger, and we're losing the midsize and the small firm. However, to translate that into a stagflationary projection, to say inflation will result, means that you have a view on demand. And as I said earlier, the demand side is really uncertain right now. Mohammed, you are going to go to Cambridge and the legacy there of all this mathematics and foundational theory is Frank Ramsey, who we lost at a shockingly young age, distant, distant, distant ago. Right now, our foundations are being shaken to the ground. We've got a pandemic. We've got the shocks of this economy and really original economics and monetary theory. Do you understand the foundations right now that we're standing on, or is the mathematics broken? Look, we're dealing with unusual uncertainty, to use Ben Bernanke's term, or radical uncertainty, to use Marvin King. So the structure of the yes. economy is in play. And as you know, when the structure of the economy is in play, you've got to bring in many elements um, of economics, of behavioral finance, of game theory to try to understand what's going on. I keep on stressing to people the most important thing right now is not what you think, but how you think. It is this ability to bring in a multidisciplinary approach to try and figure out what are the key questions and what you should be monitoring. And talking about monitoring, look, Tom, even the data that you and I look at these days is completely different from four months ago. We didn't look at mobility data. We didn't look at restaurant booking data. But that's what we're looking at right now to, to try and understand what's going on. So I think it's a different challenge. What, what is exciting for economists is they have the tools, but they have to make sure that they adapt accordingly. So, Mohammed, let's just finish there. The data point that you are laser focused on at the moment, the high frequency data, maybe. What is it? So I look, like everybody else, at, at the high, high frequency data. Um, so I look at mobility data, certainly at health data. I look at infections. I look at hospitalization. I look at what, how, how is the individual household con interacting with the economy, travel data. I mean, we're just trying to get a notion of three things, John. One is, what is the health situation? Two is, are households engaging? And three is, are companies engaging? Remember, it's these three things. It's not just health. 
because there are people who are risk-loving, there are people who are risk-averse, um, who react differently to health indicators. So we've got to keep all three um, under close monitoring, and they'll give you some feel for how we are going through this journey. It is going to be a check mark. It's not going to be a sharp V, and it's going to be one subject to a lot of volatility. Mohammed, always great to catch up with you. 510 on the West Coast. Can you apologize to the family on our behalf if we've woken them up with this interview? Mohammed Alharian of Bloomberg Opinion. Some of Wall Street hides in the Greek letters. We hide in the derivative dynamics. An expert at that is Dean Kernett at Macro Risk Advisors. I'll be direct. I don't understand half of his research note. He does extremely sophisticated analysis of the interior dynamics of the market. And he joins us right now. Dean, you were the first name we mentioned yesterday. Basically, it was get Dean Kernett. What did you observe in the interior dynamics yesterday? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, A tremendous move, obviously, in the S&P 500. Um, So we were running at about a 25 implied volatility. So that's about a 1.5% move a day. That's high in, of course, historical context. Uh, we moved 6%, so that's a four-standard deviation move. Our little normal distribution table is going to tell us that's supposed to happen once every 63 years. So first, we know, of course, markets aren't normally distributed. The, the tails are fat, and they're active. Um, but the biggest, I think, conclusion from yesterday is just below the surface of the market. Um, as has been discussed widely, the factor rotation is violent. Um, so I keep track of a a market neutral index uh, for momentum stocks. And again, I underscore market neutral. And it has had seven straight days of 4.5% moves or more. And that's 100 vol for a market neutral index. It's it's just, uh, it's staggering. Uh, so again, it's, it's we've had mega cap that, stocks um, moving like penny stocks, Dean. It's been absolutely remarkable, and I think what we're looking for are signs that maybe the coast is clear. And I know that's the trillion-dollar question; it always is. But as you look at the VIX curve right now, what signal do you take away from that at the moment? Yeah, so I, I think what what uh, the VIX is telling us is that the market was really unprepared for this. Uh, so anytime the market moves down like it did, the VIX is obviously going to fly higher. It outperformed the move. Uh, lower in the S&P by quite a bit. Uh, so so the, the, the move higher in vol is telling us the degree to which people were uh, caught off sides. And I think that can be confirmed by looking at open interest in VIX options had gotten very quiet. So the ownership of, uh, let's say, up, things like upside calls to protect portfolios was quite low uh, coming into this. <clears throat> Dean, taking a step back, after 2010, a lot of people were saying that the Fed stimulus and involvement in markets had dampened volatility dramatically. And we saw a real flat market, a real calm market. I'm wondering if there is a larger takeaway from yesterday, that the Fed is throwing the kitchen sink at the market in order to improve and smooth out market functioning. And you still see these whipsaw technical reactions that indicate some sort of liquidity issues or high degrees of leverage getting unwound. Is there some larger takeaway about the Fed reaching its limit in, in terms of being able to dampen volatility? I think uh, it's exactly right. There, uh, at, at every turn when we have these significant risk-offs, 1998, 2008, 2020, at every turn, the degree to which the policy response is larger and more overwhelming and wades further into private markets, uh, it just is telling us that the financial system is something that's it's unwieldy. Um, I, I think that that old adage, don't fight the Fed, 
um, is, of course, focused on asset prices, uh, the stock market. But I think in terms of buying volatility, buying insurance, whenever you're doing so, you are fighting the Fed. And so I, we have to respect the significance of this move uh, yesterday. It, it, it's violent. It tells us something. But at the end of the day, um, a stable VIX or a low lower VIX uh, is part of the Fed's playbook. It, it can't sit by idly and allow the VIX get back up into the 50s, allow high-yield spreads to spiral higher. Um, it, it'll sit for a little bit, uh, but at some point, you're going to have the Fed come right. back in, um, in the name of market functioning. And so, again, when you buy insurance, you've got to keep that in mind, the policy response. Dean, one final question, and I'm just going to be as direct as I can, and you can go nuanced as you like. The game is momentum. Do you buy the shift from momentum to value, momentum to small cap, momentum to international, or do you stay momentum? I, I stay with momentum. I think that the, the, the real economy is what is ultimately um, going to drive that relationship. And, and, of course, we've seen that shift back into small caps and value. It came undone violently. Um, it, a lot, So much of it's just a function of the, the success to which the economy reopens. I'm skeptical on that. Uh, you know, again, you're, you're fighting the Fed. You're fighting the policy response from the government. Um, they, they are going to feel invested in keeping uh, you know, keeping uh, income earners uh, with with income uh, if they don't have jobs. Uh, but the, the degree to which these weaker companies with weaker balance sheets are going to be able to, uh, to to thrive, I think, is is very much an open question, just given how challenging the reopening of the economy is going to be. Dean Kernett, a macro risk advisor. Dean, always fantastic to catch up with you, sir. My best to you and the whole of the team. Now is a real treat, and this is without question the must-listen interview for Global Wall Street. How good of an interview is this? Mohamed Alarian will take notes. That's because he knows Jeremy Stein owns the high ground of our theoretical finance, the underpinning of what we do. He's a former Fed governor, also a member of Princeton Gymnastics. Just a few years ago, he runs the, the herd of cats at Harvard, known as the Harvard Department of Economics. Uh, Professor, thrilled to have you uh, with us. I want to talk about the foundations of Markowitz of William Sharp, of Jack Trainer from a million years ago. Does any of that stuff work at the zero bound? Well, some of it works. Um, but I think one issue with the zero bound is if you're a stock market investor, um, you know, there's not a lot of other uh, attractive stuff out there. And you may want to diversify, but your general risk appetite is pretty high. And I think we're seeing some of that in markets now. I look at the zero bound. And of course, what we do at Bloomberg Surveillance is talk macroeconomics and monetary theory. I want you to take the zero bound over to the capital asset pricing model, the fundamental theorems that everybody on Wall Street uses. How does that geometry work if there isn't a real yield, if there isn't a virtual nominal yield and even negative rates in Europe? How does the geometry work? I'm not sure about the geometry, but, uh, you know, uh, I sit on the board of the Harvard Endowment. And one of the things that you see endowments generally, uh, a whole class of other investors, when rates are zero um, and they have targets for returns, they end up pushing pretty hard into riskier assets. And uh, I think that more than anything is the sort of uh, the sort of mechanism that's that's at play these days. 
Professor, one concept that people have discussed, not just through this pandemic, but over the last several years, is the so-called reversal rate, when rates go beyond a certain level and become counterproductive. Professor, what are your thoughts on that concept? You know, it's an interesting idea. And the basic idea is that when rates are very low, it damages the profitability of the banking sector, makes it harder for banks to lend. It's an interesting idea. I, I would say an idea that I'm more focused on now that's related is, you know, another thing that can make it hard for the banks to lend is when their capital position is badly impaired. Um, and in that vein, you know, while I think the Fed has done basically an admirable job, um, and I really want to applaud the Fed and Chair Powell, I think they've, on a number of dimensions, have really risen to the moment. One concern I have is that they've been more passive um, uh, with respect to the banking system than, than you would ideally like. Um, another number of other countries have gotten their banks to stop paying dividends, to conserve capital. The bigger thing that, I, again, that I worry about for the banking system now is not the reversal interest rate, but as, as we saw last time around the global financial crisis, they take a big enough hit to their capital, they're going to be very impaired in their ability to lend at any interest rate. Um, and I think Professor, pretty much every CEO that would come on a program like this would probably tell us that their capital position is strong and they can afford their capital return programs. They've suspended their buybacks and they can meet their dividends. What is it about the big banks on Wall Street that you think maybe some people are missing? Well, I mean, I think it's good to, to, to remember the lessons from last time around. Um, so if you think about the, the financial crisis last time, the banks paid, I would say, something like over $100 billion in uh, uh, share repurchases and dividends between mid-2007 and Lehman, didn't really raise a lot of capital, didn't really get to, to raising equity capital until after the stress test uh, period. Um, you know, so things deteriorate, and they deteriorate not necessarily immediately all at once. Um, I think here the market is trying to tell us something, as it did last time around. Bank stocks probably down. Bank stock index, I'm going to say, is down about 35% uh, relative to an S&P that's down only a handful of percent year-to-date. Um, last time around, the market was pretty good at being forward-looking. Um, those banks whose stocks declined the most were the ones that had the biggest loan losses. So I think, you know, this is a very big economic shock. It's a very big economic shock. The conventional measures of capitalization that banks look at are accounting-based. They tend to be backward-looking. If you look at more forward-looking indicators, I think there's reason and I wouldn't even say it's the baseline expectation, but is there a tale whereby you should be seriously concerned? I, I think the answer is probably yes. Wait, just to be really clear here, Professor, are you yeah. saying that the risk of a banking failure is greater than the Federal Reserve is acknowledging right now? Okay, I wouldn't use the word failure. I'm not, I think the banks are well enough capitalized that that's not something even in a sort of tail scenario. But, you know, well before failure, if they lose three, four, 500 basis points of capital, that seriously impairs their ability to lend. And so back to this sort of concept of the reversal interest rate, again, the bigger, the bigger constraint on their lending will be a shock. Again, it can be a moderate and not catastrophic shock to their capital. But if you're thinking about you know, what will help the recovery um, in the next year, having a strongly capitalized banking sector, I think will be you know, one, of the more important, uh, one of the more important elements. 
Professor Stein, we're talking about some of the consequences of the Fed's policies. You have uh, the potential oversight of banks on one hand, and on the other hand, you have a question of capital efficiency. And I know you've done a lot of work on this, a lot of people saying it doesn't make sense for Hertz to be bankrupt, for people to be buying its shares, and now to be potentially raising additional money and selling more shares. It just seems like the market is getting less efficient as rates go down and people look at the Fed as a perpetual backstop. What is the consequence of the lack of efficiency that a lot of people are talking about in markets? Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, Mark, there's an old saying that markets are, uh, I think this goes to Paul Samuels, and that markets are macro inefficient, but micro efficient. Uh, and I think you see some of that now. I mean, I would, would not want to try to even begin to explain the overall level of the market. But again, if you look at individual companies, there's some logic there. As I said, in the banking sector being one example, um, you know, I think the relative performance of bank stocks tells you something. I think even within bank stocks, we're seeing those that are most consumer exposed being hit the hardest. And I think there's some, so I don't think, I, I don't, I'm not sure I buy the idea that all this sort of microefficiency has, uh, has been taken out of the market. Jeremy Stein, I want to go against uh, your expertise in finance right now as a representative of Harvard Economics and all of that heritage. Of course, we speak to Ken Rogoff and to Benjamin Friedman and back through Marty Feldstein. You lost a giant here in this tragic summer in Alberto Alessina. How will you replace the unreplaceable of Alberto Alessina? How do you replace that beautiful holistics of political economics that Professor Alessina did? Wow. Okay. I was not expecting that question. That's a very moving question. Um, you know, it was just a heartbreaking loss for our department. And as you say, Tom, um, it's going to be hard to very, very hard, impossible to replace him in terms of what he brought as a researcher. I mean, this was a guy who was doing really Nobel caliber work, um, founded the, the modern field of political economy in many ways. Um, but, you know, uh, I sat in the office basically next to him for 20 years. So when, you know, when you raise the question, I'm sort of not quite thinking of that. I'm just thinking of one of the warmest, kindest, most generous uh, colleagues I've had. And, you know, in, in talking to others in our department, when they think of, you know, what we've lost and how we miss him, it's, it's the personal that sort of everybody seems to uh, seems to speak to. Jeremy Stein, thank you so much for joining Bloomberg Surveillance today. He is at Harvard University. For Lisa, John, and I, folks, there have been benchmarks through this pandemic, and one of them has been good, informed, and intelligent conversations with the Lieutenant Governor of the Empire State. Kathy Hochul joins us again for an update, a briefing. Kathy, let me give you the safe general question first. How is the reopening of the state from Buffalo to New York and out to the Hamptons? How's it going? Thank you for having me on the show again. It is going phenomenally well. And I say that not just from my position as lieutenant governor, but as someone who literally as recently as yesterday walked the streets. I was in Niagara Falls. I was in Lockport the day before I was in Rochester. And there is such an excitement about reopening and an energy on the streets that I am actually shocked to see because I thought people would be more sort of depressed and in a dark place after what they've had to endure. And the truth is, uh, this just demonstrates the resiliency of New Yorkers. So the reopening is going well. We've not had complaints. 
Uh, as we reopen, though, we are very closely monitoring our health outcomes and the rate of transmission and our hospitalizations. And if you look at the charts every single day, as I do and the governor does, you'll see an incredible downward trajectory, unlike what we're seeing elsewhere in this country. So the opening is going well. We're in phase one in New York City. Uh, most of upstate is uh, now as of today. Just today is now in phase three, which is restaurants and more personal services. So uh, people are feeling a sense of normalcy, except they know that it only continues if we keep social distancing and wearing the mask. And all the business owners have been really great about complying. Lieutenant Governor, perhaps they're in a dark place and they're turning to retail therapy to soothe some of those feelings. I am curious about threading this needle of encouraging people to go back out there and embrace the economy while also practicing social distancing and some of these other measures. How much are you trying to encourage people to come back and how much are you able to deploy tracers, trackers, to really make sure that people are not super spreaders at this point. We don't see a big resurgence of the virus. You have hit on exactly the answer to the problem that I'm not seeing going on in the other states that opened even before New York did. And some people criticize us for taking too slow of an approach. Well, we were not going to send a message that any part of the state could open until we listened to not just national experts, but global healthcare experts who've enlisted from London to assist us in analyzing the data to make sure we don't uh, cross that line between risk and reward. We've always wanted to make sure that we are doing this in a smart way. But the answer is testing, and there is no state in the nation that tests more people than we do here in the state of New York, over 50,000, sometimes 65,000 a day. And what happens after the testing is that information goes directly to our contact tracers, an army of individuals, and we think uh, former Mayor Bloomberg for his assistance with the state of New York, working with our Governor Andrew Cuomo to bring in the resources to allow us to have individuals trained, have them in every corner of the state, even in the most rural areas. And I oversee the reopening even in western New York, the second largest city of Buffalo. But we have incredibly rural areas, small towns, and we have contact tracers ready to jump if anyone tests positive, even in uh, the furthest corner of states down in Allegheny County, Chautauqua County, up in Plattsburgh. So that is what other states should be doing. And that is how we can get control over this virus. And what's frustrating to us in New York is we figured this out. We have led the nation in terms of how we've managed this pandemic. No one has done a better job than Governor Cuomo. And if the other states simply followed our lead, they'd be in a far better place today because we're going to continue reopening in a smart way based on healthcare data. But we're going to do it. You mentioned former Mayor Mike Bloomberg, of course, the parent company, Bloomberg LP. He was the founder, majority owner, still is, of course, of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News. Lieutenant Governor, just to continue the conversation, there is clearly some tension down in Texas. I've spoken to the administration and they've suggested to me that the bar is higher for another lockdown. Quite clearly, you've suggested that to us as well in the last several weeks, too. I'm just wondering if you can establish some guardrails for us, the kind of data that you would need to see to reconsider locking things down again. Well, we said we don't expect to go there. And again, this is why we did it right in the state of New York. And I can't emphasize that enough, that there was another alternative, which was to listen to the many voices were saying, you know, we're, we're short on revenues. Our counties can't function. You know, the state of New York is, is in dire straits in terms of the loss of revenue coming in during this three and a half month period. But we are never going to sacrifice people's lives and public health. And so the, what people have to look at when you can go right to forward.ny.gov, 
you can literally pull up regional dashboards to see the metrics that we're examining. And the one that's most important now is the rate of transmission and how we can determine what the testing rates are showing. And if you look at a place like Western New York, a few weeks ago, it was 9% of people were testing positive. That number is now 0.8%. That's extraordinary. And you look at New York City, where we had uh, you know, 25% testing positive not long ago, and the numbers are down to 1%, 2 3% uh, higher in certain neighborhoods that we're putting a laser focus on. Communities of color have been harder hit, and that's why we have even more testing and contact tracers deployed there. But that's, it's not that hard. We followed what the Centers for Disease Control had recommended early on in terms of the phasing. I mean, these guidelines have been out there, but very few states – we're enlightened enough to actually follow them. And so we're feeling yeah. not overconfident, but a sense of confidence that this is the right path to be on and we're going to continue here. Uh, and if we see a change in the numbers that are alarming, that's what all of our regional control rooms do. We're watching every corner yeah. of the state. Uh, then we'll talk about whether or not we enter the next phase. But thus far, we've not had any holdups. The numbers keep going down. New York's Lieutenant Governor on some better news. Kathy, hopefully we can catch up with you soon on some more better news here in New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.